And so this entire generation would suffer because the leaders who acted on behalf of the people and the people who followed and embraced their teaching rejected Jesus officially. If they had only responded to his claim, life would have been different. But everything changes. Now, in spite of their rejection, God doesn't abandon Israel. He still loves them. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, Fleeing the Coming Tribulation. We need to remember that the purpose of the tribulation is to bring about repentance, not just for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentile nations of the world. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 30 says, When you are in distress and all of these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Would you take uh, the, the Bible that you have in your hand this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew? If you're new to the Bible, it should be easy to find. It's the very first book in the New Testament. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series that I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And these are exciting days in which we are living. A lot of people are talking about a global reset. They're speaking about a new world order. And we've been studying that subject for the last, really, five messages. We've zoomed in on this global reset from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And indeed, there is a new world order that's coming, but neither Satan nor man nor the Antichrist will bring it about. The one who will ultimately bring the greatest of all resets will be Christ himself. John will write in the Revelation that the kingdom of the world will indeed become, he says, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, man has always tried to somehow pull off some global empire, but he will not. He has tried, but he will ultimately fail. And when you speak today about Christ coming back, about a new world order, people laugh, they mock, they scoff, they ridicule. And that doesn't totally surprise us because behind that scoffing and that ridicule is the evil one himself. And Jesus said that Satan does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and he is the father of liars. In his very core, he is a scoffer. And so we shouldn't be dismayed by what is happening in our day. In fact, it should encourage us because scoffing and mockery will increase at the end of the age. But sadly, many pastors, because they don't want to be viewed as some kind of prophecy crackpot, some zealot with all the charlatans who have made dates and abused God's prophetic schedule, they don't preach on it at all. But it's essential because we are called as pastors to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. And one-third of the Scripture is prophetic in nature. Ever since I've been your pastor over 30 years, one of the earliest sermons ever preached was on the rapture of the church in 1990. And when you preach through entire books of the Bible, because so much of it is prophetically related, you can't help but teach what the Scripture says about prophecy. In fact, I would say it's critical for a church to be healthy. 
By way of introduction, let me give you five reasons why it's critical that a pastor teach on prophecy if the church he shepherds is to be healthy. Reason number one, a church cannot be healthy if it does not preach end-time prophecy because if the pastor does not preach that, he will not purify the people of God in the way that they need to be purified. You say, how do you know that? John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, when you speak about the end of time and Christ's return, what does it do? It moves you to holy living. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's the promise. And everyone who has this hope, the hope is his return. Everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself as he is pure. The second critical reason to preach end-time prophecy if a church is going to be healthy is that it produces a godly fear. Do you remember what we studied months ago in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11? Let me read it to you. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What sort, what manner you could render it? It's a word that speaks of something that is foreign. In other words, Peter is saying that if we really understand what God has planned for his people and for this world, it allows us to live as foreigners. We are aliens and strangers, to use his words. While we are citizens and we are to be responsible... We recognize ultimately our citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven. A third reason why it's essential to preach biblical prophecy is it becomes an impetus, a motivation to evangelize the world. Jesus made this statement in John chapter 9 and verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is called day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he's commissioned to every born-again, blood-bought child of God to do the same. But there's coming a time when that opportunity will expire. and We'll have no further chance. And yet, today, because I think prophecy is largely ignored in the church, habitually I get questions that search the scriptures where we broadcast and people listen through the internet and How do I find a church that will open the scripture, especially a church that will teach Bible prophecy? And so God's people are fogged over. They're half paralyzed when it comes to the commission that Jesus has given us. And so when you teach the whole scripture, including biblical prophecy, it becomes an impetus to evangelize the lost. Let me give you another reason why it is essential for us to preach Bible prophecy, and it is simply that you will be rewarded for loving Christ's return. The judgment of the just, I preached a whole message on that. There is a judgment that Christians face, not for sin, but for service. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And among other aspects of what God evaluates your life on, it's whether or not you long and love the return of Christ. Listen to these words. Paul He's writing his very last epistle. It's the last virtual words he will ever record. 
And he says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. I hope you love his appearing. And when you study prophecy, it really deepens that love. Now, here's a chart to help you to see where we are at. Currently, we are in that section of time that theologians typically refer to the church age. Because Christ said, I will build my church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It came into being chronologically on the day of Pentecost. But there's coming a time when God will remove the church. It's called the rapture. And the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy will begin to unfold. That seven-year period of time known as the Great Tribulation. At the end of that seven years, the second coming of Christ to the earth will take place. First, he catches us up and we meet the Lord in the air in the twinkling of an eye, but at the second coming, every eye will see him, and he will literally, physically, bodily come to the earth. He will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, we will enter into the eternal state. So we still have some ground to cover in this series. Now, certainly, God could have raptured the church in the year 300 or 500 or 1,000, but then he would have had a lot of things to have pulled off, He could have certainly done whatever he chose, but he would have had to have brought the Jewish people back into the land, reestablish them as a nation, and allow them to control the city of Jerusalem because the final prophetic schedule takes place on a piece of geography called Israel and largely in a city known as Jerusalem. But God waited nearly two millennia to do that. But it's precisely what God said he would do at the end of time. Listen to the words of Isaiah 11. He lives about 700 years before Jesus. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So Isaiah writes of both the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. And in the latter days, again, a term used by Moses, by Ezekiel, by Isaiah, by Jeremiah to refer to that final time frame in history when God will, among other things, gather the Jewish people. Listen to Isaiah 43. God said, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So God has been doing that in our lifetime. It's one of the signs, the super sign, that we are in the final time frame of human history. And so just as the same prophet said, can the Jewish people become a nation in a single day? And the answer was yes. May 14th, 1948, you need to have Israel in the land as a nation to fulfill the final prophetic schedule. And they have to have Jerusalem, which of course they regained in 1967. And so our passage is dealing with this seven-year period. We've looked at the first half. Then there's a critical event in the middle that we're going to begin reading with. And then it moves us into the second half of the seven years. Now, I hope you have found it, Matthew 24. I'm reading now, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. 
But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, you can print it out if you're live streaming us. There are three truths about the coming tribulational wrath that I want us to get a hold of. First, the sign to flee God's wrath. We begin with a sign to flee God's wrath. Now, by way of context, the setting is critical to understanding what follows. The setting is the Olivet Discourse. We call it that because it's given on the Mount of Olives. And of course, uh, what precipitated this are the events that took place just prior to this. If you remember, on Sunday, Jesus, we call it Palm Sunday, on the 173,880th day, just as the prophet Daniel predicted, he comes into Jerusalem and he presents himself as Israel's promised Messiah. But what do they do? They end up rejecting him Initially, emotionally, some of at least the Galilean Jews say, hail him. By the end of the week, they're saying, nail him. They want him exterminated. And so in chapters 22 and 23, Jesus rebukes and exposes the leadership that the people largely followed for their hypocrisy and for their unbelief. In fact, he compares the present generation of Jewish people while he's on earth to those who habitually killed the prophets. And so Jesus will say in Matthew 23 and in verse 36, if you look down at verse 36, truly, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And contextually, of course, these things refer to the judgment that will come on the generation of Jews for their rejection and for their persecution of God's men, for God's Messiah, the destruction of the temple, and then their scattering to the four corners of the world. And so this entire generation would suffer because the leaders who acted on behalf of the people and the people who followed and embraced their teaching rejected Jesus officially. If they had only responded to his claim, life would have been different. But everything changes. Now, in spite of their rejection, God doesn't abandon Israel. He still loves them. Jesus, with tears flowing down his cheeks, says this in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Jesus wanted to gather them, but they were unwilling, not unable, but unwilling. They made some volitional choices. Now, of course, what happened was their scattering in 70 AD, and it continued till a final uprising around 132 AD. And Luke, of course, details what would happen in Luke chapter 21. Jesus reaffirms what Moses had said in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me read you Jesus' words in, Deuter- in Luke 21, 24. And they, the Jewish people will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. 
and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Matthew, in verse 38, gives us some of the details of this invasion. He says in verse 38, again, this precipitates the Olivet Discourse, and if you miss this, you're gonna miss the meaning of the message he gives. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What was the house? Every Jew knew what the house was. The house was the house of God, the temple. The temple is going to be left to you desolate and you're gonna be spread to all nations. But has God abandoned Israel? No, look at verse 39. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from one of the great messianic Psalms, Psalm 118. Barak, Haba, Beshem, Yahweh, or the Jews would say Adonai, because they don't wanna mispronounce Yahweh. Until you say that Barak Abem Bashem Adonai, I'm not going to come. What does that until imply? They're going to say it. Jesus cannot come back in the second coming until the Jews turn to him in faith. He can come anytime in the rapture. But for the second coming, the Jews have to turn to him in faith, and he will indeed bless them. He came in the name of Yahweh, and until they recognize that he came in the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, he will not come back. And so the house of the Lord will be left desolate. It will be utterly destroyed. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 24 where we are at. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came out to point the temple buildings to him. Now you might want to put Mark 13.1 out in the margin. Mark adds a detail that Matthew does not give us. Let me read it. He was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now Herod began the construction of this temple in 20 B.C. Herod dies the year Jesus is born, 4 B.C., His architectural plans continue, according to John 2.20, for another 46 years. It's completed in 64 AD, the temple. It's magnificent. It's one of the seven great wonders of the world in the first century. And then it's destroyed in 70 AD. Now, we don't call it the third temple, though technically it is. It's not called the third temple, though it is a brand new temple, but Herod made an agreement with the Jewish leaders that none of the sacrifices would stop. And so he dismantled piece by piece of the original temple and rebuilt the whole thing from the ground up, including the very temple mount on which it sat. Now, these Jewish men knew that Jesus looked at the, at the temple scores and scores of time during his whole life. And yet they point out to him, teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Why do they want to underscore that? Because he just said, not one stone would be left upon another. He is going to obliterate the entire temple. And of course, they knew in the past that when the temple was destroyed, the first temple, then the second temple, that it meant disaster for the children of Israel. And so in their minds, you know they have to be processing. If the temple's going to be destroyed, as you say, Jesus, what does that mean for us? 
By the way, this was the place in which they met the living God. You couldn't approach God flippantly. You had to approach him on the basis of blood. And this is how they worshiped the living God, through the temple sacrificial system. If that's not there, how are we going to meet you? And of course, later in the week on Thursday night in the upper room, he is going to introduce to them the new covenant that was spoken of by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other prophets. And he's going to remind them that it will be his own precious blood that will become the basis by which men approach God. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, Do you not see these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will be torn down. I told you a few weeks ago, a parallel might be in 1990, looking at the Twin Towers, which at the time were considered the strongest and tallest buildings in the world. And to say in 1990, not one floor will stand upon another. You'd say, how is that possible? Someone would have to do something to the Twin Towers to make that happen. And they recognize that this structure was so incredibly strong that someone would have to do something and not just some superpower because this is the house of God. This is God's house. How is someone going to destroy the house of God? So much so that Jesus can say, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And of course, 38 years later, the Romans came in, surrounded Jerusalem, and there was a flaming arrow, Josephus records, that hit the temple and some of the great cedar wood that came from the cedars of Lebanon. And the temple caught fire. All the curtains and all the gold and silver and bronze were heated up and melted and literally began to seep through the stones. Not to mention that the Roman soldiers, it's recorded, believed that there was a great treasure house of wealth. And so with their mighty crowbars, they literally pry apart every single stone to get the spoils of war, and not one stone is left upon another. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and you've seen this pile of stones here pictured. Uh, The smallest stone in the temple was two tons. Many of them were five tons. When you came to the retaining wall, which is what you see today, and you don't even see all of the retaining wall because most of it is underground because street level in Jesus' day was in a very different place in many parts of Jerusalem. In fact, there's one stone. It's 560 tons. It's the single largest piece of stone that man knows of that has been placed in any kind of architecture. So how is this going to happen? This is an incredible claim that Jesus is making. And so, of course, it's destroyed. The people are scattered. Years, decades, centuries go by, and people say, God's done with the Jew. It's over. It's history. So along comes a man by the name of Eusebius. His dates are 275 to 339. And he taught that the promises of Scripture were now meant for the Gentiles and the curses were meant for the Jews. Here's a picture of John Kostrostom. You cannot graduate virtually from any seminary in America without reading the works of Kostrostom. He, He lives 349 to 407. And he stated this in one of his sermons against Jewish people. He said, quote, The synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, It is also a den of robbers. 
and a lodging place for wild beasts. Jews are inevitable murderers possessed by the devil. Along comes St. Augustine, as we refer to him, 354 to 430. So he is uh, preaching in the uh, 4th and 5th century, and he lays the groundwork for Roman Catholicism. He gave the seeds for full-blown what we call replacement theology or supersessionism, that the church has superseded the people of Israel. When you go into Yad Vashem, we call it in America, in Washington, the Holocaust Museum, one of the first sights that you see is a picture of Augustine with these words he said of the Jews, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, speaking of the Jews, with your two-edged sword, so that there should be none to oppose your word. And of course, he taught what was called the theory of substitution, namely that the church was now to be substituted for Israel. And again, Augustine said, because of their rejection of Jesus, they should, quote, bear the guilt for his death for the death of the Savior, for through their fathers they have killed Christ. So when you witness the Jewish people, like I did yesterday to a man in our neighborhood, and you grow up knowing that Gentiles and Christians say that you're guilty of deicide, that you Jews are guilty of killing God Almighty, you know why they bristle up sometimes and turn back. And of course, again, Augustine planted the seeds for Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church didn't begin with Peter. I hope you know that. So it's in the late 6th century that the Pope of Rome takes precedence and they become the Roman Catholic Church. As the centuries unfolded, listen to what Pope Gregory IX, here he's pictured in 1227, he said, quote, they, the Jews, ought to know the yoke of perpetual enslavement because of their guilt. See to it that the perfidious Jews never in the future become insolent, but that they always suffer publicly the shame of their sin and servile fear. Pope Pius V in 1568 wrote these words, the Jewish people fell from the heights because of their faithlessness and condemned their Redeemer to a shameful death. Their godlessness has assumed such forms that for the salvation of our own people, it becomes necessary to prevent their disease. He viewed them as a diseased people and sadly did not understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ, not to mention that not only were the Jews involved in the crucifixion of Christ, so were the Gentiles, and so were you and I, for he was pursued for our iniquities. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 018. There is no friendship that is more important than friendship with God. It is a relationship with eternal consequences, and the greatest act of care or concern you can ever show someone is to introduce them to Jesus. If you have never shared Christ with anyone, or if it has been a while since you have done so, we would like to help. Dr. Brogi has written a booklet that highlights five principles that are fundamental to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend begins with a number of diagnostic questions and concludes with a presentation of the gospel message. These booklets will really simplify sharing your faith. And now we will send you a gift of 50 of these booklets for a gift of any amount to search the scriptures. Call us today at 877-787-7478 and ask for the Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend gift pack. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.